Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. On that matter of uh, intolerably hot weather and uh, so on and so forth, we understand that the climate is changing rather rapidly and the earth is heating up. Now, whether or not there's a consensus on that uh, seems to be the argument that certain uh, curricula in schools are not adequately teaching the science or uh, giving the kids a sense for the impact and proffering possible solutions. Now, Seth Wines is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia, and he's just co-authored a report, Climate Science Curricula in Canadian Secondary Schools, Focus on Human Warming, Not Scientific Consensus, Impacts or Solutions. So let's find out what the deal is and why schools may be laggard in that regard. Seth, it's nice to have you on The Oakley Show here in Toronto. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. All right. So you're saying that the school curricula on this matter is uh, sorely lacking. How so and why so? So school curricula do do a good job of teaching that climate change is caused by humans, but they don't focus on the scientific consensus of this fact or on solutions. And that's important because if students don't understand these facts, then they're unlikely to be motivated to help solve the problem. Well, all right. When you say scientific consensus, uh, help me out here because, you know, as much as I've read, heard, tried to pay attention to the debate and the argument over the years, uh, there still seem to be outliers in this regard who, and again, I'm not one to really uh, be able to judge, I guess, their credentials, but they got a lot of letters after their name. Uh, as outliers, are they not credible? No, not really. Um, so we know that about 97% of climate scientists believe that the Earth is warming and that that is caused by humans. We also know that those experts who agree with this consensus tend to be more well-regarded, more highly cited in their field. And the people who disagree often disagree with each other on what exactly is going on, whereas everyone in the 97% agrees this is a human-made problem. Can we then be definitive about to what extent it's a human-made problem? They also agree that this is 100% a human-made problem. We would not be experiencing the kinds of symptoms of change that we are now if it weren't for climate change. There are a lot of studies, a lot of evidence backing this up. So that includes things like what you talked about as you introduced the show, increased likelihood of heat waves and so on. For people like me stationed out in BC, it means increased wildfires and more smoke from those wildfires. Well, yeah, and yet you get an argument. I've heard it here on this program from time to time from, again, I'll call them the outliers who say uh, the science is not settled. Uh, science can never be that definitive because it's always fluid and uh, there might be other reasons and sunspots and so on and so forth. Uh, is it something that should be disregarded as part of a, a school kid's possible options or alternatives to consider? Yeah, I think it should be. And the argument I would make is that we have about the same certainty 
that climate change is happening and caused by humans as we do that secondhand smoking is leading to cancer. And so if you were to pick up your average health textbook, you wouldn't expect there to be statements in there saying, oh, you know, students should debate whether or not secondhand smoking causes cancer because we trust in that scientific consensus that we've built up and we're at the same place with climate change. Well, then how do we account for instances where computer models have been uh, really uh, miscast or they're, they're really off the mark? The hockey stick graph for Michael Mann, for example, is one such, isn't it? No, I, I believe that that has been validated. I think there was a, a period of time when there were more questions, but we've sort of moved on from that. Um, it is a little outside of the scope of my study. I can just tell you that scientists agree on this, and we need to be moving towards which solutions as a society do we prefer going forward. All right, let's talk about that then, because that seems now like uh, that's the new battleground uh, impact, uh, notwithstanding how do we proffer solutions that might balance, uh, say, a healthy economy or economic activity with practical results? Uh, is that something that the kids should be taught? You know, that would be the type of thing that kids can debate in the classroom, right? So should kids be arguing about whether or not gravity exists? No, that's not the kinds of arguments you want them to be practicing, right? And it's the same with climate. But when it comes to solutions, Definitely, students should be having discussions amongst themselves saying, which of these solutions do we think are better? Which ones on an individual level are you more likely to adopt? Which ones would you prefer to see happening as a society? That's the kind of area where definitely discussion should be ongoing because we want to have students that are prepared to engage as citizens in our society and that means understanding climate change going forward well for example uh i'll cite bjorn lomborg the skeptical environmentalist uh the danish academic uh and polemicist if you will he's often uh well he concedes yes the planet is warming but for the half a degree celsius that we might mitigate it by stopping human activity to a cost of trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that's not a trade-off worth making and you say what I say, you know, spend a little time in B.C. trying to breathe in August or in Alberta during those wildfires. Sometimes the impact that we're experiencing, you don't necessarily want to be able to put a price on them. You know, we're talking about the health of our most vulnerable populations. Um, we're talking about diseases spreading. They're values that we hold across our society, and not always can you assign a dollar sign to them. Um, I know Mr. Lomborg tends to be a little bit outside of the scientific consensus, but again, I would just stress that these kinds of issues about how do we want to deal with climate change, that is more within the realm of something that students can discuss and debate, whereas the consensus of whether it's happening is outside of that realm. All right. You would concede it's a global issue, though, would you? Um, that climate change is a global issue? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, this is where we get into, again, uh, splitting hairs, because while there seems to be consensus as well that Canada's contribution to global warming, or emissions anyway, is rather insignificant, it's uh, almost a rounding error, 1.6% of the overall emissions, whereas the big emitters like China, India, and the United States, uh, 
the burden should fall upon them, whereas it seems to be falling upon us disproportionately. And you say what? I mean, that's a great point. Humans care a lot about fairness. And I think the basis of your point is the idea that we don't want to be unfairly burdened, right? But the way that you're looking at it is on a national level. You're saying that we're only responsible for a small piece, but the fact is we're also a small piece of population. If you look at how much each individual Canadian contributes, it's a much bigger chunk. There were world leaders in creating emissions. And so I would just make the metaphor of if you were going to a restaurant with a large party of guests and at the end the bills got passed around and you looked at yours and said, oh, I'm only a small fraction of this bill. You wouldn't dine and dash on that, right? You would say, oh, no, it's my responsibility to pay my fair share. And the same could be said of Canada. All right. Uh, even though perhaps we're just an appetizer and everybody else is going full tilt into, uh, you know, a five-course dinner. Nonetheless, uh, I see what your point is. You think that, you know, we've all got to do the heavy lifting. Even though China gets a pass in the Paris 2015 Accord, they don't have to stop emissions until 2030. How is that fair to us? Well, John, I really like the way that you've extended the metaphor. I would just suggest that maybe you've gotten it a little bit backwards, that in fact each Canadian is not having an appetizer, but instead we're having a big plate of steak and a glass of wine going along with it, because each one of us is responsible for a lot more emissions than the average individual from China, for instance. Well, all right. Are we breaking it down on a per capita basis or geographically by landmass? I mean, because we're a Nordic nation and we're a vast expanse, second largest landmass, I guess, on the planet. Uh, doesn't that really, in some ways, penalize, uh, penalize us disproportionately? I mean, definitely uh, a valid way of looking at it. On the other hand, we've really benefited from fossil fuel use over our history. We're a developed nation with an opportunity to lead the way to tackle these emissions head-on and to create a more positive world for us to live in, a more positive society with cleaner renewable energy. A lot of these solutions are win-win. You know, shifting towards electric vehicles means that we have cleaner air to breathe in our cities. So you can look at it as a burden. You can also look at it as an opportunity. Well, I guess we have to recognize, though, that, uh, you know, politics is downstream from culture. And if the culture is, sh- uh, you know, shape-shifting and schools are a large part of that, you know, they're really on the vanguard of it. And what's being taught in the schools seems inevitable if, as you say, the curricula is changed to reflect the urgency that you're suggesting, then it's only a matter of time before the politicians all see this as something, a battle that has to be fought and won. In fact, we're already there, aren't we? I mean, some some polls are suggesting this is going to be the preeminent uh, issue in the upcoming fall election. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I think that the connection that you've pointed out between education and um, political issues and the population is, is definitely very much there. And that's a reason that we want our education to cover climate change in a really adequate, even more than adequate, comprehensive way so that we have informed voters who can make good decisions on these hard topics. I see. All right. Uh, And there's no room for dissenting opinion, as you uh, project. This is already settled, and uh, anybody that feels otherwise is somewhat of a heretic, I guess. Well, heretic is a strong word. You know, people have different opinions, of course, but in science classrooms, um, 
teachers ought to be teaching the scientific consensus, what is agreed upon by the scientific community, especially on a matter like this where there is such urgency to act. Seth, it was great to talk to you this afternoon. I appreciate your weighing in. Thank you so much for your time. You got it. Seth Wines again is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of B.C. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.